of glittering delights. And here, host, Dandre Leyland. King of the Rocket Men was a 12-part Republic serial made in 1949. The Republic serials were a series of high-adventure, all-action, short-form films normally made on the cheap. The shorts, in between 12 and 15 minutes normally, aired in weekly instalments at the local Flea Pit Cinema. Each chapter of the serial ended in a cliffhanger, designed to bring the punters, normally easily impressionable kids, back next week to part with their parents' hard-earned cash and witness the next exciting instalment. The Republic serials were the television of their day. They normally consisted, especially during World War II, of simple morality tales of good versus evil, of mad scientists, heroes and villains, and emphasised action and thrills. Mostly, they produced westerns, crime mysteries and science fiction thrillers that entertained and enthralled the generations of kids, despite their often threadbare production value. Republic operated from 1935 to 1967 and offered many first and early appearances for pulp characters on screen, such as Zorro, Dick Tracy, The Lone Ranger and Captain America. After the demise of Republic Films, the serials were offered to various TV stations around the world as syndication packages, sometimes edited from the 15-minute serial chapters into half-hour or hour-long instalments, or occasionally into short-form feature films. The BBC had had some success airing the Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers serials throughout the 1970s and 80s, and this led to them airing King of the Rocket Men on BBC Two from Monday the 9th of March, 1981. Stripped daily, I presume this airing was my first viewing of the serial, and it captivated me from the off. Back in those days, people still didn't really care if stuff aired in black and white. Hell, I still had an old black and white TV in my room at this point, and that this was screened at 1740 meant it was prime counter-programming for kids seeking to ignore the realities of the world provided by the nightly news broadcasts over on BBC One. In fact, on that day in 1981, after King of the Rocket Men, eight-year-old me could go off for an hour and do something else, and then at 1900 hours switch over to BBC One for a repeat of the Star Trek episode, Is There In Truth No Beauty? King of the Rocket Men must have been reasonably successful for the Beeb, as it quickly received a repeat airing later that same year, this time over on BBC One. Screening in the morning over the Christmas and New Year period of 1981-1982, the first episode went out on the 21st of December. The same day, the last ever episode of Blake 7 ruined everyone's Christmas by killing everyone off. This screening of King of the Rocket Men will have irritated many kids, myself included, as breaks for Christmas, Boxing Day and the New Year meant the last few episodes will have aired after we all went back to school. The serial aired again in the summer of 1987 and then jumped back to BBC Two for the summer of 1988. Its final airing was as a double bill with Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe in the early mornings over Christmas 1991-1992. Written by Royal Cole, William Lively and Sol Shaw and directed by Fred C. Bannon, King of the Rocket Men's official release date is June 8th, 1949 and starred Tristram Coffin as Jeff King, a.k.a. The Rocket Man, who won the part over former Superman Kirk Allen. This was unusual casting for the time, as Coffin traditionally played villains in the serials. He later cropped up in four episodes of The Adventures of Superman, including the special Stamp Day for Superman and an episode of Batman. 
One of the remarkable things about King of the Rocketmen, and why I think it works, is that it doesn't try to be too ambitious. The first two-thirds of Chapter One's running time is a pretty standard mystery drama. The opening scenes depict the deaths of various directors from scientific associates, and the remaining council members believe it's an inside job by someone calling themselves Dr. Vulcan. They appoint the council's security director, Jeff King, to investigate. These investigations lead him to Professor Millard, a man believed to be dead, but actually working in secret on a propulsion device, an atomic-powered rocket suit. So far... So straightforward. But as Richard Donner and Tom Mankovich proved with Superman in 1978, you ground the fantasy as much as you can to make it palatable to the audience. King's investigations bring him into conflict with Vulcan's men, but when they steal a truck transporting an aerial torpedo, King has no choice but to don the rocket suit and pursue them. Over the course of the serial, King will learn that Vulcan's plan is to gain control of the Sonic Decimator, an advanced weapon with which he plans to take over the world. King of the Rocketmen excels in a number of departments. Despite the formulaic nature of the chapters, which follow a straightforward linear progression, last episode's cliffhanger will be resolved. Jeff will then continue his investigations before a situation arises that requires him to don the rocket pack again, followed by a new cliffhanger. But the mystery is well handled. Jeff's investigations proceed logically and seem well thought out. There are no great leaps of logic here. Jeff follows the breadcrumbs cleanly and thoroughly. The acting is all on point, and the flying effects achieved via a dummy on wires technique by the effects team the Lidecker brothers is remarkably effective for actually being real. It's amazing that the simple act of being in the sky above the locations, rather than rear projection or an animation, really sells that Rocketman is flying above the city. Sure, it's limited from today's point of view, but eight-year-old me bought into it wholesale. The first chapter is definitely the scene-setter, and the second chapter pretty much settles into the aforementioned formula, one that will be adhered to pretty rigidly for the next 11 weeks. The strings do show a little over the course of the run, This kind of thing was not designed to be binge-watched. It was a week-to-week experience, and the writers relied on the viewers not remembering the little details, such as the repeated cliffhanger at the end of chapters 1 and 4, and the insertion of new footage into the beginning of every chapter that wasn't present in the previous one. The chapters all feature fisticuffs, car chases, shootouts and the like, and the plot advances incrementally in each segment. Jeff King is an interesting lead, and his name gives the serial its title. King of the Rocketmen. See? It's a pun. King is very much a two-fisted scientist in the Indiana Jones mould, and the bad guys frequently underestimate him because he's a scientist, obviously forgetting he's also Scientific Associate Security Advisor. As such, some of his escapes are quite believable, because the Hoods think he's a weedy egghead and incapable of taking care of himself in a Donnybrook. It's therefore quite satisfying when Jeff punches the lights out. Rocketman himself bears a startling resemblance to Dave Stevens' The Rocketeer from the mask, helmet and the method of propulsion, although Rocketman has a control panel on his chest. The instructions are very simplistic in King of the Rocketman, with the simple dials for up, down, fast and slow. The jetpack is also very much like the Rocketeers, although Stevens' creation pays far more attention to aviation principles than King of the Rocketman does. 
the serial doesn't trouble itself with how the suit is fueled or the basic science of it, or if it's a rocket or a jetpack, both of which are quite different things. A jetpack needs to intake air to work, whereas a rocket pack carries its fuel and oxidizer and then mixes them together for combustion. I mean, of course, King of the Rocketmen's science fiction, so none of that really matters, but a small amount of scientific accuracy never goes amiss. The chapters all feature the requisite amount of double crosses and forced danger. The latter is designed to ensure each chapter ends in such a way as to drag the kids back next week for the next exciting instalment, as Jeff tries to uncover who Dr Vulcan really is and what's his plan. At various points in the serial, Jeff is accused of being both the Rocket Man and Dr Vulcan. You can occasionally see the writerly tricks at work in the former. In every other instance, Jeff has kept the rocket-slash-jetpack in the boot of his car. Except in this episode, where he stashes it back in Dr Millard's lab. This is solely so Millard can be the Rocket Man for the scene in which Vulcan attacks Jeff, essentially proving that Jeff can't be Rocket Man. This would be Millard's last hurrah, as he's killed off heroically in the next chapter. The body count on King of the Rocket Men is quite high, although the serial's lone female lead, Lois Lane wannabe Glenda Thomas, played by Mae Clark, is mostly only threatened and tied up, despite many occasions where they could have just shot her. To the serial's credit, she isn't a screamer or a love interest. She's simply a reporter investigating the deaths at Scientific Associates, and she helps Jeff out in return for the exclusive. The cliffhangers are all much of a muchness. Chapter 5 has Glenda plummeting to her doom in an aeroplane, and there are always ways out in the next chapter that weren't seen in the prior chapter. Chapter 8 has the best cliffhanger. Rocketman zooms over to Glenda's apartment where the HUDs are working her over for what she knows, only to have the sound of his jetpack give him away. The HUDs open fire at point-blank range into his face as the Rocketman flies towards the window. Amazingly, the resolution is the most deeply unsatisfying of the cliffhangers. The hoods simply miss. They are terrible shots. The plot continues to unfold, although Chapter 9 is a placeholder episode. And, despite having recaps at the opening of every chapter, not very good recaps, it has to be said, but recaps nevertheless, Chapter 10 is a flashback episode, covering the serial's main events thus far. This really slows down the pace of the serial, although it makes for a cheap chapter and makes it an easy edit for the feature film version. Chapter 11 sees Jeff discover who Dr Vulcan is, thanks to him making a silly mistake of ordering a delicate piece of equipment in his own name. Whilst this could be seen as daft, I quite liked it. It is the kind of stupid thing someone would overlook when trying to mastermind a plan to take over the world. Vulcan turns out to be just another madman with delusions of grandeur. He plots to extort New York with the Decimator, saying he will reduce the city to rubble, just like he did with Millard's cave, unless he receives a billion dollars, an inordinate amount of money in 1949. Vulcan plans to use the Decimator to activate the Amsterdam Fault, located 100 miles out of New York. This will bring about the worst tidal wave and earthquake in history. I do wonder if Lex Luthor ever watched this serial. The ending is really bleak. Vulcan succeeds in wiping New York off the map. Buildings crumble, water cascades down the streets, many people die. 
I'm not used to the Republic serials having a hero that doesn't win. I mean, yes, Vulcan is taken out by Rocket Man, but that doesn't really amount to much when the villain essentially carries out his plan. Sadly, the ending is almost completely ignored in the final scene, where we all have a laugh about what happened and that Vulcan was killed. New York will be rebuilt, says the Commissioner, essentially ignoring that from what we saw, there's nothing left. Now, this was largely because the footage used was stolen from the RKO feature film Deluge, whereas this serial would rather have us accept that the damage was minimal. So what to the people crushed by the tidal waves? King of the Rocket Men is, nevertheless, a surprisingly entertaining serial, replete with all the problems and positives of the serials of the time, but with more intelligence than a lot of them. If only it hadn't copped out with the ending. A massive surprise to me was learning that in 1991, Innovation Comics did a four-issue miniseries based on this serial. Innovation had a pretty good track record of this kind of thing. They did continuations of Quantum Leap and Lost in Space, both of which were highly enjoyable, as well as a comic book adaptation of Forbidden Planet, which I've covered on this show before. The King of the Rocketmen miniseries was written and fully painted by Chris Morla, with calligraphy by Vicky Williams. The comic is written really well, editing different scenes together to make them flow, and inserting scenes that were cut from the serial. Moella makes the story elements hang together as well, having certain characters learn of Jeff's secret more logically, and adding some pathos to Professor Millard's death. The whole scene with Millard and the lava filling his hiding place at the end of Chapter 7 is better in the comic, and of course he edits out pretty much all of Chapter 10. Moella then completely rewrites the ending, restructuring the penultimate chapter from the ground up, removing some gratuitous fistfights and car chases, and essentially skipping from when Jeffy's been gassed, the cliffhanger from chapter 10, straight into chapter 12, which he fleshes out more thoroughly. He also alters the ending significantly, with a full-on strike on Vulcan's HQ, a small island called Fisherman's Island, which is raised to the ground. The devastation of New York isn't ignored in the comic book. With New York wiped out, Jeff King ends up closing Scientific Associates, and the surviving scientists end up forming Theseus Force, a veritable fleet of rocket men. However, this ends up being less a peacekeeping force, and promises to be something far more sinister. King has apparently provided the president with a list of targets, who the rocket men are going to wipe off the face of the earth, apparently with extreme prejudice and no actual proof of wrongdoing. They are also, and I quote, going to rule the earth and the sky and our enemies will quake in dread at our passing. Not entirely convinced that sounds like a particularly heroic organisation. Hmm. Sadly, though, the comic is really hard to read. Whilst the art is nice when the reader can make it out, Moella seemed to have a limited colour palette consisting of black, grey, dark purple and dark brown. Because of this, Moella's use of captions to get the meetings out of the way in one page, which happens multiple times, features black writing on a dark brown background, and I needed to use my phone light to read it. And it was daytime. Rocketman would return in three sequel serials, although this serial would essentially be ignored and Jeff King would not return. 
The sequels, Radar Men of the Moon, Zombies of the Stratosphere, which featured a young Leonard Nimoy, and Commander Cody, Sky Marshal of the Universe, would feature different characters in the Rocket Pack, all with different backstories. If you're interested, the original King of the Rocket Men serial can be seen on archive.org. A few episodes seem to skip, but what do you want for free? Hey everybody, Clinton Robinson here. I recently attempted to sneak into the Longbox Crusade headquarters basement to watch some of the Albrecht Brothers action movies while the crew was out at the Saturday matinee theater. Too bad I had a little mishap and got stuck down here with no movies to boot. However, there are pieces of Pat's old podcasting equipment and excellent Wi-Fi service. So I decided to pass the time watching online fan films and talking about them. What, you don't know what a fan film is? Well, there are these non-theatrical movies that people post online of already established characters and settings. Hey, hey, hey now. Just wait and see. Save all judgment for what happens when you listen to Fan Film Friday. A new podcast found on the Longbox Crusade podcast feed. Let's delve into the email sack, should we? Our first email tonight is from Nathaniel Wayne, Return of the Camp Crusaders. Hey there, Andy. Hey, Nathaniel. So I did that thing again where I've fallen badly behind on a bunch of stuff, so be prepared to start getting feedback to old episodes. It was a delight to hear you cover Return of the Cape Crusaders and its sequel. The 60s show has always had a minor but fond place in my heart. I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but I didn't really have TV growing up. We had TV sets, sure, and VCRs, and Nintendo, and all of that, but no TV signal coming into the house. So the only shows I ever really saw were the ones my grandmother was kind enough to tape off cable for me at her house. This did include a couple of episodes of the classic show, although funny enough, I don't think I ever had any complete two-parters. Either I had it up to the cliffhanger and was left wondering what would happen, or I had the resolution and had to count on the announcer to fill me in at the front end. Despite this, I did enjoy the few episodes I had, but spent way more time engaging with the movie. I never really grew out of it. Presumably because I never got picked on for being nerdy, so I never had to be defensive about it. But I never felt the need to dive in any deeper than my nostalgic memories either. So Return of the Cape Crusaders was kind of perfect for me, because it evoked all those things I remembered. But since I never knew the show like the back of my hand, I don't get overly critical about what it does or doesn't measure up to. Batman vs. Two-Face is one of those sequels that is probably as good as the original, but it feels like a lesser film, because you can't capture that surprise a second time. I certainly found these more enjoyable most of the other animated DC films released to home media. It seems like only the silly ones are any good anymore. These Batman Brave and the Bold and Scooby-Doo, Batman and the Teenage Ninja Turtles, etc. All the serious ones have either been bland or awful. The last good serious one was The Death of Superman. In my review on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, I actually argue it's better than the comic, but that got undermined by Reign of the Superman being infuriatingly bad. Before that, you have to go back to 2014 and Justice League Gods and Monsters, and to be fair, even the silly ones can suck sometimes. Batman Ninja wasn't as bizarre as it probably should have been, and Batman Harley Quinn was a mess. But the silly ones still have a better track record of late. Look at that, I only went slightly off the rails on the topic this time. Great listening, as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Death of Superman. And then I really didn't enjoy Reign of the Superman. 
So, yeah, I watched your videos on them. I, I think we're pretty much in agreement on what the problems of Reign of the Superman. You know, maybe I should watch them both back to back and, and see how it works. Like I did with the Dark Knight Returns. I enjoyed that adaptation. I enjoyed the Dark Knight Returns adaptation. And I enjoyed Batman Year One. I'm having a look which other ones I've got on my shelf. Because, again, that's one of those instances where they started churning out too many of them. And I also heard, you know, just how dark and miserable an adult they were becoming. And it's like, you know... I don't really need that in my life, to be honest. Anyway, thanks, Nathaniel. Uh, my next email is from Alistair Jakes. Hi, Andrew. Happy New Year. Uh, happy New Year, Alistair. Your podcast is great as ever, which I never get bored of hearing, and I must give special mention to your review of Spider-Man Life Story. I'm sure I must have mentioned before that the big reason I can't get into mainstream superhero comics is the lack of a clear, easily consumable single canon plotline. So the idea of a story that sums up a hero in one clear narrative is refreshing. It seems almost a British phenomenon, with stories like Robin Hood, King Arthur, and even Sherlock Holmes having a final, definitive end. It's why the musical Hamilton stuck with me quite as much as it did. It also shows why Blake 7, Deep Space Nine, Farscape, and Babylon 5 stick with me so much and remain favourites to this day. A strong ending makes the journey worth revisiting. I finished watching Star Trek The Animated Series and I'm amused that the one episode considered canon is the one that clearly established that if it weren't for time travel, the timeline we all know and love would never have happened. So that old criticism that the J.J. Abrams films suck because every time the timeline went wrong they fixed it is canonically untrue. I joke because I hated that episode where I've actually loved the Abrams Trek movies. Are you on about yesteryear? which is generally considered to be one of the best episodes of the animated show and also generally considered to be as good as some of the live-action episodes. Because I like Yesteryear a lot. I'd have to watch it again. Because my memory of it is Spock has to go back in time to ensure that history unfolds as it should. And he passes himself off as an uncle to young Spock or a, a deep, distant family relative or something. I'd have to rewatch them again, or that one particularly, to see if you're right about that. But that's my memory of it, that Spock is essentially making sure that time unfolds as it should. I then watched Star Trek The Motion Picture, considered Alistair, and it is slow. The teleporter accident is unnecessary and cruel, and I'm thoroughly anti-Kirk the whole way through because he's proved to be a selfish, ill-formed man, not fit to captain the Enterprise. Actually, that's the lesson of the film, that Kirk desperately wants to captain the enterprise to the point where he's lost that indefinable thing that makes him captain of the enterprise and over the course of the movie he gets his mojo back so you know that said i enjoyed the movie and the slow panning shots of the enterprise are deserved because this is the eye candy shot that shows why kirk is doing all this every true kirk story seems to have him seducing someone or being seduced and here the lady being ogled by the male gaze is the enterprise in all her new budget glory well he's always been in love with the enterprise Again, that goes all the way back to the original show. There's the the infamous no beach to walk on scene from The Naked Time. There's another episode. I cannot for the life remember which one it is. It's an early one. I already have a Lady Bones. Her name is Enterprise. So he's, he's always had that relationship with the Enterprise. Before I go, I remembered one comic series I did love with a definitive end and clear narrative throughline, Transmetropolitan. It's a cyberpunk story set in a future America following a gonzo journalist reporting on politics. Yes, Transmetropolitan is absolutely fantastic. Goodbye for now and Happy New Year, or possibly Easter, depending on when this actually gets read out. No, it's Hey Kids Comics where the email gets delayed. This I'm, uh, I'm relatively up to date on. 
Okay. That about wraps it up for uh, this time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nathaniel and Alistair, for emailing in. If anyone else wants to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. And next time, I'm going to be ranking the TV vehicles. Pretty sure long-time listeners can guess what number one's going to be, but the others may be a surprise. See you next time, and everything is going to be okay. Goodbye.